Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the U.S. of A., where, I don't know if you knew this, but it is perfectly legal to murder an unarmed black man so long as you have a badge. We had to go there right too, before too Christmas real? Day. Too real? I didn't start the problem. I'm just pointing I'm, it out. I'm on your side yeah, on this, okay. Dave, no no doubt. But really, really, in yeah. my inbox, I'm going to get a bunch of Christmas I'm, hate mail yes. from our conservative listeners yeah, well, or, and racist go. listeners. Right. <laughs> of which I'm sure there are many. Uh, there's probably a few. <laughs> I'm actually willing to take another side on this, but there's another time on this debate. I'm, I'm willing to wait in. Uh, you and my father-in-law. Oh. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts in you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio here in Michigan on WPRR 1680 AM, 95.3 FM, and now 90.1 FM in Clyde Township or the southern side of Grand Rapids if uh, that's uh, where you're at. And in Pontiac, Illinois on WPJC 88.3 FM and, of course, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. Yeah, right? Our tentacles are like <laughs> everywhere. And in Pakistan, Just Radio Karachi. You <laughs> wait. Uh, my name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. And one place you won't hear us is China, though. <laughs> that, that is true. Uh, teen pop sensation Justin Cheever. Probably just because it says Jesus all the time in mm-hmm. our blog. More that we've mentioned the Dalai Lama. But oh. still. <laughs> uh, welcome back to Dr. Professor Luke Galen. It's good to be here. Good to have you here. Coming up in today's show, we have an interview with Dale McGowan from the Foundation Beyond Belief. Luke's got uh, God Thinks Like You as his welcome back after being gone for a few episodes. Welcome back. We'll also have some props and shit list and a tangentially holiday-themed polyatheism to round it all out. But first, big news for all of us atheists out there who hate joy. (laughs) We're winning the war on Christmas, according to a new study. And we didn't even have to try is the amazing thing. We need to give thanks, maybe a little pause uh, for all of those who lost their lives in the war on Christmas. <laughs> the battle for Black Friday, Black Friday. or something. <laughs> yeah. Which was also – Lost a lot of good ones that day. Speaking of uh, holiday traditions that are dying off, Black Friday this year was, was way down. But Pew Research Forum has a new poll showing that the holiday celebrations are, are changing over the past, uh, well, generation really, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not all that new. It's it's a year old. Mm-hmm. 51% of Americans think of Christmas as a religious holiday. Only about half. Yeah. 32% think of it as more of a cultural holiday for them. And 9% would say it's either both or they refuse to respond or don't care. They, they had never heard of Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were very confused. Um, but overall, what I found was interesting is – an overly general conclusion I think you can draw from this is there's really not a ton of difference amongst Americans in how they view Christmas right. 
almost all Americans celebrate it, even non-Christians. Yes. Of course, 96 percent of Christians celebrate it. But a full eight out of ten non-Christians also celebrate Christmas too. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of statistics we could select out of here to look at. But I think some of the important ones were maybe this, the generational differences. Yeah. Younger adults were far less likely – if you're under 30, you're less likely to incorporate religious elements into your holiday celebrations. And this this even was true of young adults who would identify as Christians. It just mm-hmm. didn't seem as important to them to bring in a lot of religious ceremony into Which it. Which is amazing to me because when I was a kid, we went to church Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. It was It was – I mean New Year's Eve and New Year's Day because we were CRC and apparently the pastor got paid by the sermon. But it's it's weird to me that people don't associate the religious ceremony with Christmas if you are religious. But there it is. It actually talks about the uh, change from childhood to now where people talk about uh, attending religious services. Mm-hmm. So it says that people who plan to attend this year, this is this is last year, 54% compare that with the, their childhood, which was at 69 yeah, percent. So that's, that's a significant change now, So that well. seems to be a tradition that's on the wane, even in Christian circles. Although right. bigger traditions that are on the wane are pretending Santa Claus will visit home on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. 72 yeah. percent for when people were children, which is people roughly our age. I don't know if mm-hmm. you did this. My mom always dressed up as Santa. Yeah, it's weird. Um, <laughs> now... Thirty-one percent, only down from seventy-two percent. That is a huge. I wonder if it's just harder to keep the lid on the fact that he's not real. Well, that's the thing. I think um, because kids, I don't know that kids are smarter, but they're more linked in to uh, all sorts of things. It's hard to to miss the idea that Santa isn't. And with our kids, we don't do Santa. We used to put out uh, cookies. You know, we still do some of that stuff, and just you know, it's just a fun tradition. It's not real. Caroling. That, caroling. I want to know who was caroling when I was young. Me too. I never I got to do never that. never remember a caroler ever. Us, uh, when I lived in a rural community, our church would go on bus trips where we'd visit these farms where some of these people who didn't yeah. get to town, like these old school people, mm-hmm. and we would sing carols on a farm and then go to the next so farm. So you actually like did Christmas carol. When Not you... willingly. Well, no, of course. <laughs> I would have totally been no one that. Under the willingly. threat of hellfire and parental punishment. What do you guys think? 36% of people did it. Oh, let's uh, find some good uh, Dan Barker songs or something. <laughs> And some atheist uh, caroling. But 36% in childhood, now down to 16%, which is still higher yeah, than yeah. what I've witnessed. That's but a pretty I, big drop. I don't, I don't disapprove of that as a tradition as much as some of the other holidays. I don't either. Yeah. Should we start caroling right now? No. As long it. as I can pick the song. King <laughs> Wenceslaw. Old King Old Coleslaw? King Wenceslaw. <laughs> what should we do with the drunken sailor? Wait, that's <laughs> not a Christmas carol? Not Christmas. Uh, another cute statistic that came out was even amongst the childless, at least 23% of couples still pretend like Santa's coming just for each other. I don't, Weird. Know. Of That's course, no, no indication of what it means for Santa to be coming no. or who, who exactly even, is Santa I, in this scenario. And I, uh, full disclosure, Backdoor Santa is my favorite Christmas song. So no. Here is the key statistic that really uh, mm-hmm. stood out for me and I think a good one to conclude this story on. Of all people surveyed, they asked them, with Christmas and the holidays, what do you look the most forward to? And some of the options were time with family and friends, religious reflection and church activities, or just 
general things like, you know, people are more happy and joyful during this season. And overwhelming response, almost 70 percent said time with family and friends was what they yeah, valued. 11 percent said religious and church services. These were even amongst the war on Christmas types, <laughs> even you know hardcore Christians. Still, when it comes right down to it, what they're really looking forward to is just that time to be with yeah. the people they love. So they're not all that different from us, us uh, dirty heathens. That's right. So let's just end this war on Christmas, yeah. guys, man. Yeah. I, I don't even think I'm fighting it, but let's just stop <laughs> fighting it. You know who they're really – no, seriously, who they're fighting – who the, the conservative Christians are fighting against is not secular. It's, it's capitalism. It's been commercialized and Which that, is that weird war because is that's over. their favorite thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So they, they're trying to – like you hear all these things about they're not – you know, it's remember the reason for the season. They're not telling that to atheists. They're telling no. that to people who go to the stores and shop and get presents. And then and asking all that. them Which, to buy actually, their teddy bear that says reason for the season. Right, right. Or go see their movie about how Christmas is too commercialized. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm actually I'm, – I'm all for that because I, I, I feel like this is – and maybe it's because I'm a teacher and so I'm not working for most of December and therefore I have less income. But – this is the worst time of year to be the most expensive time of the year. Yeah. You have Thanksgiving and Christmas both at the end of the month. People are struggling to pay their bills. The survey bore that out actually. Yeah. Just under the complaint, 33 percent complained about the consumerism or commercialism of, of Christmas. But almost as many, 22 percent complained just that it's too expensive for them. Right, right. And this uh, – there were uh, – there was quite a few stats talking about uh, lower income people mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. They tend to think of it much more as a family-based thing and make handmade gifts and that mm -hmm. sort of thing simply because they don't have the money right. to well, buy presents well, for everybody. The, think about the theme of all these holiday specials is often <clears> – no, you have to remember the real reason for the thing. What does it say about a tradition where you have to constantly be reminded of what <laughs> yes. the real reason for the That's tradition funny. is? Never I mean even that. if you think back <laughs> to the canonical Charlie Brown Christmas thing. Snoopy was all commercialized with this thing and Charlie yeah. Brown was bemoaning that it's all become commercial. That was like, you know, what, Which, 40, 50 years and, ago? And I'm now understanding how ironic it is that I purchased a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, which is the Christmas tree that we <laughs> used for several years. Um, it's for sale. It just needed a little love. Does it say in the box, love you, Love must be provided by the, you know, does not <laughs> it, come included? It does play that. music and comes with a little Linus blanket as a tree skirt, so it's adorable. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, speaking of the real reason for for the season and the things that maybe we should be focusing on this time of year. Why don't we turn now to our interview with Dale McGowan? Dale McGowan's been on the show before uh, in our parenting episode way back, I don't know, way in back the when. 30s, the yeah. episode uh, somewhere in, in the like 30 that. range. Uh, 1930s. Guys, you guys have been really <laughs> pulling hard for I mean, quite a while. Episode 30. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sometimes he's, it feels like that, though. He's the author of Parenting Beyond Belief, Raising Free Thinkers, uh, Atheism for Dummies, mm -hmm. and In Faith and Doubt, most recently, How Religious Believers and Nonbelievers Can Create Strong Marriages and Loving Families. But today, he's talking to us in his role as the executive director of Foundation Beyond Belief. Foundation Beyond Belief is uh, starting a project this holiday season to raise $75,000 to help fund their efforts to uh, engage humanists and secularists in charity worldwide. We're really excited to get him on the show to pitch maybe what our humanist dollars should be going to this holiday season. So without any further delay, let's go to our interview with Dale McGowan. Dale McGowan, thank you for joining us again on Reasonable Doubts. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy. We had you on a few years ago to talk about parenting. Today we have you back on the show to talk about your work as the, uh, is it the executive director? Yeah, that's right. Of the Foundation Beyond Belief. <laughs> For our listeners who don't know anything about Foundation Beyond Belief, can you give us a little background on the foundation and its mission? Uh, sure. Foundation Beyond Belief is a 501c3 humanist charity, and uh, the idea is to give uh, humanists and atheists a place to uh, focus and demonstrate their charitable giving. Uh, that was the initial uh, plan. The initial program was uh, a charitable giving program. And uh, we've expanded since then into other aspects of philanthropy, including volunteering and uh, overseas service. Uh, but it, we still have the same mission of basically encouraging humanists to rise to the highest uh, aspirations of humanism, and uh, that's mutual care and responsibility. We we know that there's no supernatural power to help us out, so we need to come together and do the best we can for ourselves for a better world. There is a bit of a charity gap between secularists and their religious counterparts, and so it's great to see an organization like this stepping in to try to fill that gap. Have you considered the foundation to be a success so far in its rather short career, only a couple of years now? Yeah, it's uh, actually we're uh, now we're coming to the end of our fifth year, and um, it has been a tremendous success, really beyond what we uh, what we anticipated. And you're right, there, uh, the charity gap is real. It's something that uh, every once in a while atheists say, "Oh, it's you know that those numbers are skewed or something," but it's it's very well established by uh, very solid survey instruments that churchgoers regularly give two to three times as much of their discretionary income to charities as non-churchgoers. And, uh, but it's interesting that it's phrased in that way. It's not belief and disbelief. Mm-hmm. It's whether people are going 52 times a year in many cases to into this place where they hear an inspirational talk about the needs in the world and then a shiny plate is passed mm-hmm. and they have the option of giving or not giving. Uh, in the presence of their friends and peers and neighbors. And uh, that ga- gives them a, a sort of structural opportunity to encounter philanthropy over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's perfectly sensible that they give more at the end of a given year. So I wanted to create something that gave non-theists that same opportunity. So our members sign up for a monthly donation in the amount of their choice, comes out of their account automatically, and they're able to distribute it among our featured charities however they'd like. And in the past five years, we've raised $1.75 million for charities wow. around the world. That's incredible. That's that's really good news. I'm, I'm surprised in, in just uh, five years that it's come along that, that powerfully. What are some of the groups that, you don't, that the foundation donates to? Uh, well, what we do is uh, we have five categories of giving. Okay. Uh, there's poverty and health and uh, education, human rights, the uh, natural world, and then we have a fifth category called Challenge the Gap, in which we feature one progressive religious charity per quarter. It has to be a non-proselytizing charity that works mm-hmm. for the common good, so people putting their religion to uh, to good use uh, rather than bad. And mm-hmm. uh, our members are able to distribute their funds among those five cause areas, however they'd like, and we have a new slate of charities every quarter. So we have... Um, we tend to stay with charities with relatively small budgets, usually under $10 million a year, which sounds large, but it's not <laughs> compared to a lot of charities. Um, so we look for innovative, effective charities in that range, and we have done everything from an orphanage in Nepal to uh, education programs in southern Africa 
to a science education program in India to a soup wow. kitchen in Trenton, New Jersey. I mean, it's really been a wide range. And uh, it's uh, typically education and human rights are the areas that our members support most strongly. A lot of our members feel that education is really the key mm-hmm. to everything else. You know, once you bring education in, then poverty and health and the environment and so on are helped. So uh, anyway, it's, so it's, the idea is to make sure that people have a range of choices um, over the course of a year and uh, to really be able to express their humanism in the way that they'd like. That's excellent. And I, I'm interested in this Challenge the Gap program. Is, is, that, is that meant to build more bridges between progressive religious believers and, and non-believers? Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. It's, uh, it's something that our members expressed interest in early on. They said, hey, you know, this is, this is something I'm really interested in as a humanist. Mm-hmm. And some other people were not, and then that's easy for them to just direct their funds in another direction. But um, the idea is to show, to really challenge that gap, to show that um, there are a lot of toxic expressions of religion out there, but there are also a lot of people who are doing perfectly good work mm-hmm. uh, within their worldviews, and we wanted to underline that common ground. So at this point, we have actually uh, donated to um, at least one charity in every major world religion. So we had an Islamic charity and a Jewish charity mm-hmm. and a Christian charity and so on. Uh, and in every case, we spend a lot of time making sure that they are doing charitable work without proselytizing, and there are a lot of those groups doing it. And when we contact them and say, hey, we're an atheist humanist group that uh, wants to give you a grant because you're doing great work, uh, it really blows their minds. I mean, it really, we get some fantastic reactions from these groups. They just find it to be a really positive thing. Yeah, and a lot of them advertise it on their websites. They say, look at this. This is a, this is a great thing. It's just completely made my day to make this connection. It's, it's really been a positive thing. That's great to break those stereotypes and, I mean, maybe even learn a few things, too. I mean, the uh, religious groups have been in the charity game for a while. Skeptical movement or free thought movement, humanist movement, whatever you want to call it, right? It seems like we're just now getting that critical mass behind us in numbers and exposure to really get movements like this going. Right, that's right. You are currently doing some end-of-year fundraising. Yeah, that's right. This is a really crucial, like it is for a lot of nonprofits, this is a crucial time of year for us. Uh, we get as much as a third of our operating budget for the year uh, has to happen in December. Right now, we are actually about to launch two new programs, two very exciting programs, but they're also uh, very costly programs. They, they really are going to require a lot of resources. One of them is a disaster recovery teams program. We're helping to organize the humanist response on the ground when disasters happen in the United States. And uh, we're also launching the Humanist Service Corps, which is going to send a small team of humanists to work in uh, northern Ghana for a year starting next July uh, in the witch camps of, uh, of Ghana. Uh, so these are really exciting things, but we uh, need to make sure that we've got the resources for it. So yeah. we are trying to raise $75,000 in the month of December uh, and doing it through a, uh, through a drive that is really going well, but we can use some help to get, uh, to get over that last hurdle. I've heard everyone has just been blown away by the amount of support that's already come in and some uh, some matching grants that were made, and uh, and especially this uh, most recently Dogma Debate Radio, I think, did a 24-hour telethon, and uh, uh, apparently it was a great success. Oh, yeah, it was an amazing thing. David Smalley uh, and uh, John Carf uh, for Dogma Debate, 24 hours without a break, uh, with uh, 24 guests on the show. It was absolutely amazing. That's and they awesome. stayed up the whole time. 
and raised $31,000, uh, bringing us uh, almost halfway to our goal just by themselves. That's that's incredible. I, uh, major props to, to those guys for doing that and, and for everybody supporting it. And uh, these uh, these new programs, they sound really exciting. We had Leo Igwe on the show oh, about a, a month ago, I think, and uh, he was telling us about these witch camps in Ghana. Oh, yeah. And uh, just how much need there is out there. Can you tell me more about that program and what's going to be involved? Yeah, Leo was actually the one that uh, first gave us that connection as well. We had a um, uh, an exploratory year last year. We sent a team of four humanists around the world uh, working on uh, in eight different countries, ten different service projects to plan the Humanist Service Corps and select the one location that would be our uh, long-term commitment, and they connected with Leo in northern Ghana and were with him in the witch camps and uh, just realized it was just a uh, the perfect opportunity for us. It was very resonant with our community to be addressing these superstitions and the negative uh, results, and uh, so that's where we're going to be focusing. Uh, and it's in the witch camps, it's a fascinating situation because uh, the camps themselves are not the problem. A lot of people mm-hmm. think of them as you know, like concentration camps or something like that. Actually, these women have been, as Leo probably mentioned, they've been expelled from their villages. They've been kicked out of their families under accusation of witchcraft. And the camps actually give them somewhere to go. Yeah, they're like almost like refugee camps. Exactly. Um, And But one of the things that happens in the camps, they don't have a lot of money to run these camps, Mm -hmm. and so the quality of life is not great. And so one of the things our, our volunteers are going to be doing is going into the camps, living there, bringing attention to the, the, the plight of the women and the children that are there, but also working to improve their lives while they're there. They're going to be doing everything from helping to create uh, water um, gathering systems uh, to uh, medical improvements in the camps to putting a new corrugated tin roof on a hut. You know, I mean, there's just the whole range of things they're going to be doing over the course of a year uh, in that camp. So we are currently actually... Uh, taking applications if someone is interested in going uh, on this first team to Ghana starting in July of next year. They can go to our website and click on the uh, application for the Humanist Service Corps. And that actually, uh, uh, the deadline for that is December 19th. So if there's anybody interested in doing that, um, they they can do that. What are the kind of qualifications for somebody who's going to be going out and, and doing that? Who are you looking for? We are looking for someone who can demonstrate uh, maturity, communis- communication skills, mm-hmm. resiliency, somebody who has had experience, uh, preferably somebody who has had experience uh, traveling. You know, if it's mm-hmm. the first time out of the country for somebody, that might not be, you know, ideal for suddenly being gone for a year. Um, so it's going to be a, an intensive um, selection process that includes initially just the online application, but then um, interviews, including an in-person interview where we really get to know the person. And Connor Robinson, who is the uh, director for the program, is going to interview every candidate um, who is in the, uh, in the next round and uh, just really look for people who are going to make the best team together mm-hmm. but who also bring the combination of skills and maturity uh, that uh, make it clear that they're going to be up to the challenge of living overseas in uh, – less than modern conditions mm-hmm. uh, for a, a good period of time. It, it sounds like the opposite of your typical youth group mission trip that a church might yeah. put on, where it's uh, it's essentially a vacation uh, with a few shacks built or something like that. Right. Um, this you're really hoping to get 
you know, skilled people who are energetic and wanting to get stuff done. Absolutely. That's right. That's, that's awesome. And, uh, related to that, closer to home, you have the Humanist Disaster Recovery Teams. That's going to be one of your programs for 2015. Um, it sounds pretty self-explanatory, but, uh, how could one join a humanist disaster recovery team? Hopefully yeah, we won't is... need one, but, uh, we probably <laughs> yeah. will. Oh yeah, absolutely. At some point, uh, um, it's, it's always going to be needed. Uh, this is another thing that, um, religious organizations have really done well, um, created on-the-ground uh, disaster response situations where they're able to actually or quickly organize and, and deploy uh, people where they're needed. Um, so this is uh, our attempt to really create an organized um, uh, response team situation for um, non-theists. Uh, we are creating a database. We have a database um, of volunteers uh, from around the United States. So you can actually go to our website, click on Humanist Volunteering, and find the database for um, disaster recovery teams. And you can put in your information. It's no obligation to anybody. But if you're interested in potentially responding to a disaster, you can say um, how far you're willing to go, what your particular skills are, what your interests are. Um, and then if there is a disaster within your um, the radius that you've indicated, that needs your particular skill set, uh, you would be contacted and uh, dispatched, deployed for the uh, um, for the disaster. It's being run by uh, Re- Rebecca Vitzman, mm-hmm. who you may remember from uh, the Moore, Oklahoma tornado oh, last yes, year. Oh yes, yes. After that experience of having her home destroyed by the tornado uh, and having Wolf Blitzer ask her if she thanks the Lord. Do you remember that whole thing? Yeah, oh, yeah. And Re- yeah. Well, Rebecca is just uh, an astonishing person. She's just an amazing, energetic, intelligent uh, um, person. And we're just really thrilled to have her in the movement and in the organization. And she was immediately looking to create an organization that would uh, do exactly this, that would help to organize the humanist response uh, on the ground in disasters. And we were planning to um, put to expand our disaster uh, response uh, capabilities at the same time. So she and I met in Oklahoma three weeks after um, the tornado, and she immediately came aboard with Foundation Beyond Belief and has begun building this program and just doing it so professionally and with such skill. It's just been absolutely terrific. What a cool story. And we also have a couple of other staffers, one of whom is a uh, graduate student, she's pursuing a doctorate in uh, disaster management now, Samantha Montano. Uh, and then we have um, Louise Vandewiel, who is has 15 years' experience with the Red Cross organizing and training volunteers on the ground. So this is a very professional operation. They're doing a fantastic job creating something that is going to be a world-class disaster recovery unit. Uh, we're not doing this in a slipshod way. But this is also the reason that we really need to make sure we've got the resources behind mm-hmm. it to have people professionally trained and to create a, a uh, something that we can really be proud of. This is this is so exciting. This is such an exciting time, and what you and the foundation have done is incredible. I'm so glad you guys are out there, and yes, we need to support them. So now's the time to get out your wallets. I know everybody's spending for the holiday season, but we definitely hope our listeners at Reasonable Doubts here are going to contribute to this. Now, I guess I have uh, uh, one more question before I let you go. What about those who don't have money to give? Uh, You mentioned these volunteer networks that you've set up, but it does more than just disaster relief. What are some of the other volunteer opportunities that these networks take on? 
Yeah, the, actually, the main volunteer opportunity that we have um, is something called the Beyond Belief Network, mm-hmm. which is a uh, a network that encourages existing free thought groups to develop the volunteer capacity of their groups. Mm-hmm. So to to move beyond sort of the intellectual side of our groups and to really engage their own communities and to work on improving uh, their own uh, towns and cities. And uh, we started, see, it was uh, three years ago that we started this program uh, with six teams in six different towns in the United States. And we helped to support them and help them find volunteer activities and give them logo wear and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and that has now expanded to 103 humanist volunteer wow. teams around the United States that are all working in their local communities. So if somebody's interested in having their own free thought group join the Beyond Belief Network, they can, again, go to our website at foundationbeyondbelief.org. They click on the Humanist Volunteering tab, and they can find the Beyond Belief Network uh, site and uh, click on a form to uh, apply, to just apply for the network, and, and uh, in they come. And that's, and that's great. I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I, I remember when we, were, when we were starting our little organization out here in Michigan, and we were starting to get more numbers. Uh, we had a, our own little service group. It's a, it is a little intimidating at first, knowing exactly where to start. Are we going to get the support? Where is our sure, time, yeah. effort best spent? And uh, it's really cool to think that there are resources like what you guys are providing to give advice, to give help and training as to, as to how to make a difference and, and start these programs up. Where do my listeners go to donate? Uh, if they want to donate, they can either just go to our website and click on the the box. There's a you can see the world um, uh, with a with a link to the site, or you can go directly to the site. It's razoo.com okay. slash fbb2014. All right, and we will have a link up at www.doubtcast.org to the uh, donate page for Foundation Beyond Belief as well. Dale McGowan, thank you so much for joining us again and for all the work you're doing out there. And I hope you guys reach your fundraising goal and far beyond. Well, thanks. I appreciate it, Jeremy. Now, uh, the Foundation Beyond Belief did terrifically well in its recent fundraiser, which doesn't mean you can't keep contributing, of (laughs) course. that's that's what I was going to (laughs) say. But even that is just a drop in the bucket compared to $4 million that's being spent on uh, on some research. A rather curious research project that will be the subject of today's God Thinks Like You. I'm used to hearing about money for like psychological and neuroscience research, but you guys are the philosophers. You never really hear that much about the big bucks going to philosophy researchers. Yeah. I'm really wondering what a department philosophy department does with four million dollars. <laughs> uh, well they have to here. pay all of their yeah. students who graduated with philosophy degrees and can't get yeah, jobs. Well, gold so that would be nice. Gold plated armchairs. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they have to build that actual ivory tower. So that's that's expensive. <laughs> wow. That too, I guess. Yeah. Alfred Maley from uh, Florida State University. His department's going to get $4 million for a research project on the nature of free will. Mm. Who's giving them this money? 
is relevant. Oh, I think it's pretty obvious who would be given. Yeah. The uh, the Templeton Foundation, um, yep. which is very... That uh, was my first guess. <laughs> I'm getting so good at this, you guys. Which is uh, a, um, I don't know, what would you call it? It's a... It's a it's the, a religious yeah. nonprofit. Yeah, that, they're always funding things, uh, you know, the, about the intersection of science and religion, uh, and so you'll see their stamp on a lot of philosophical conferences that deal with those issues. We've talked about them plenty of times right, before. Right. On the show, yeah. Like for we, a lot of that stuff with Justin Barrett's research, hasn't that been correct? I, I think yeah, I think he's involved. Uh, and, and a they Templeton, do fund some yeah. very good stuff and yeah. stuff that we've we've given props to yeah. previously on and, the show, and some pretty horrible stuff yeah. too. I think what bothers me more about the Templeton Foundation than the fact that they have an agenda is that they have so much money behind it. They can take somebody that's obscure or a research area or that's obscure and almost overnight propel it into the mainstream. Right. You can read critiques. Right. I think Daniel Dennett, uh, the philosopher, has criticized Millet and some of these people for taking Templeton money. If I read the articles correctly, it's not even the John Templeton Foundation. It's is specifically the theological wing of the John Templeton. Oh. Foundation. There's a name and an acronym for the project. I th- I'm yep. Big questions. It's called the Big Questions yeah. in Free Will Project, and it is funding eight two-year science projects at an average cost of three hundred forty thousand dollars each. I need to come up with something like this. It's a lot of dough. Listeners of our show will know that we've talked before on the show about the free will determinism issue ad nauseum. We've devoted multiple episodes to it. Why are people <laughs> interested and why am I so interested? I think it is. Here's the thing, the way I conceptualize it to justify my interest in that. <laughs> if we're going to be more than just anti-religion, there are things that le- that are building blocks that underlie not only religion but a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. woo-woo type stuff. Things were meant to be type pseudo superstitious things and free will is one of those things. It's not a specifically – when you're determinist, you're not specifically anti-religion. But it's one of those things along with dualism and yeah. you know, teleology and uh, you know, that sort of thing that forms a building block of a lot of religion but also a lot of quasi-religious yeah. matters you know, and brain versus soul concepts, that sort of it stuff. It can be at the root of a lot of judgments that I think are destructive mm-hmm. in our society. I, I think one, the, the bootstrapping mentality – all people are created equal and if somebody is uh, disenfranchised, it's their own fault because they're lazy or they're criminal or something else yeah, like that. Yeah, I think religions have it's, correctly latched yeah. onto it because they know that determinism is a threat. They're right about that. Mm-hmm. It is a threat sure. to things like heaven and hell and afterlife mm-hmm. responsibility and that sort of stuff. Uh, just world belief uh, would be another one that I think has de- has – uh, free will components underneath. Yeah, just this notion that everybody's a self-made person and that you're really, uh, you know, in some deep way, really ultimately responsible for the situation mm-hmm. that you're in. And for people who are listening to the show right now, and and you're new to the show, you haven't heard our free will series, and you're wondering, wait a second. Are the doubtcasters actually saying we don't have any control <laughs> over our own actions and there's no such thing as right or wrong or any of this stuff? Uh, don't worry. The ridiculously short version is uh, we basically on this show have always argued that everything we do is caused, that yes. human beings are physical, biological systems, that we're bound to the exact same laws of cause and effect that run the rest of the universe. Mm-hmm. And so that means that every single action we make has physical and psychological antecedents to them. That can be fully explained in terms of causality or at least ideally could be fully explained. We're not saying that people don't make volitional actions. We're not saying that winks and blinks are the same thing. 
but we are saying that no one has the power of God to create their choices ex nihilo. Right. And God doesn't have that power either. And we're also saying that um, <clears throat> being determined is different than being predetermined. Yes, that, that's another huge part of it. We don't defend fatalism or any nope. idea that your destiny has been set before the beginning of time. We're just talking about everything is part of a large causal framework. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the part of the moral benefits too is it tends to make us a little more humble and it – tells us that when we confront difficult social or behavioral problems in people, we should look for the underlying cause and try to address that rather than judge them or put them into prisons and and that sort of thing. Yeah, we're way more humble and less judgmental than those assholes who think differently than we do. So, so much. put them into prisons for – and here's one of the distinctions that we're going to talk about today is put them in prisons for retributive reasons versus other reasons that are like protecting society. We're not not against prisons. (laughs) We're not against locking people up. I'm sorry. I I had a vision of Batman where we just let everybody out. Gotham is yours now. (laughs) Take control of your city. That's good. That's good. That's really good. One of the, that's relevant to one of the impetuses for the material that we're going to talk about today is that Alfred Melle, the philosopher from FSU, is coming to our fair city in mm-hmm. Grand Valley State University next year. There's like book club in the philosophy department to prep for that because he's written some books on topics. His topic this time is does neuroscience show that we are not free? And so you can look this up on YouTube and some of his other papers of things where he takes issue with neuroscience studies that the authors of those studies have suggested support determinism. Mm-hmm. Things like the Labette study or LeBay where back in the 80s there was a study where people's were told to make a motion with their hands and watch a clock and then report when they received when they made the conscious intention to move and there was a, a gap there where the person's decision yeah. was already in Mm-hmm. In action, by the time that they reported it, you know, leading to the, what Labette yeah. suggested was is that there was the conscious aspect of things was an afterthought or an epiphenomena. Melay takes issue with studies like that, where you can see he goes on for you know fifteen twenty minutes in his talks about dismantling that study, which does have flaws. It wasn't really oh, yeah. an experimental study. They didn't like manipulate <clears throat> anything. LeBay is not the best experiment to prove determinism, but it's an interesting starting point to talk about the sure. discussion. And that's one of the things that irritated me enough to want to talk about this stuff is straw man type things. Yep. There's a lot of neuroscience since then that does manipulate variables with things like magnetic stimulation of the sure. cortex. Unbeknownst to the subject, yeah. you, you you zap their cortex with a little magnets through their skull. And there was a radio lab about this homemade thing. You can get all the stuff at Radio Shack yeah. oh, and yeah. zap yeah. your brain and, and they use it for like uh, assassin training it as may, one in the example. Military, it, it makes it almost focus. I want one it's kind now. of chilling to me oh. as an academic because it makes <laughs> you, people – You can build it. <laughs> they, they had, the reporter talks about this where you play like a shooting game yeah. and uh, they stimulate the cortex and it sort of focuses the people so that they can crowd out stuff and just pick targets off one by one mm. without all the crazy thoughts of mm-hmm. panicking or things like that, which is a little disturbing creating oh, yeah. automatons. Yeah. Yeah. We have also mentioned on the show uh, there's some uses for temporarily disabling centers of the brain. Mm-hmm. So like a really good TED Talk is by Rebecca Sachs from MIT where she talks about the moral centers of the brain being temporarily knocked out and it impairs your judgment yeah. between responsibility of right and wrong. Right, we right, talked right uh, we that. talked about a study on the show where you could turn somebody from a deontologist <laughs> to a consequentialist yep, right. just by – 
by knocking out one portion of the brain. The, tempor- the pr- temporal parietal junction of the brain makes uh, is involved with making decisions about attributions for responsibility. Right, you could right, have right. known otherwise versus you know it's not your fault that sort of thing, and which clearly affects in this case moral judgments of whether that person is yeah. responsible. Now or not. people would might respond by saying, "Oh, this is no evidence against free will because we are." experimentally manipulating a brain. This is not how a brain properly functions. But I think the response is, well, you know, that's under experimentation, under the manipulation, but people have differences in their brain. If there's some area in your prefrontal cortex that's really important in restraining your behavior and when you knock that out, you see weird behaviors happen, well, there are some people who are just naturally going to have that underdeveloped in them or maybe overdeveloped. Mm-hmm. That's what the Rebecca Sachs study shows that as kids develop and mature in this center mm-hmm. of the brain, they start to develop the distinguishing ability of responsible versus not responsible. And adults who vary in this activity center of the brain, mm-hmm. they also – it correlates with their judgments of responsibility or not. In other words, if you have an underdeveloped, janky area that's not active, you are – you show that like lack of ability to discriminate. Well, he couldn't have known, so I shouldn't blame right. him. Hey, and no. nobody chooses to be born with an underdeveloped right. prefrontal yeah. cortex. Speaking or, of uh, differences in brains, a guy that we talk about several times on the show, the uh, Texas shooter, um, Charles, Whitman. Charles yeah. Whitman, you know, his brain was recently stolen. Yeah, really? it, was, it was amongst the hundred brains yeah. that were that disappeared from, I think, a college where they were being housed. So. Zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, yes. well, he had a, a tumor right a pushing down his amygdala, and it caused him to become yeah. a very different person in a, in almost self aware that oh, yeah. he had changed. We talked about him plenty. Yeah, previously. yeah. I, I read uh, for my philosophy class when we talk about this. I read quotes from uh, Charles Whitman's suicide letter, mm-hmm. which includes things like, "I don't know what's going on. No. Can somebody donate my my money to a mental health foundation?" Yep. Well, that, lead, that leads to some of these things with neuroscience too that's also devastating arguments against free will is it's not just the manipulation but the people's conscious experience. It's not as if they're like, oh, you just zap my brain. Therefore, I will do that. Can't resist urge. They confabulate a reason. They don't know mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Their conscious report is I chose to do that when in fact they didn't chose to do it. There's other studies that, that – are better than this Labette study yeah. where the people's decision to move this or that hand are created mm-hmm. by the experimenter, by stimulating the cortex, move right hand, move left hand. But yet the people don't report like, oh, zap, I must move right hand. Right. They said, oh, I just uh, – I wanted to move my right hand. Yeah. I think, Luke, you did a pretty good job in some of our uh, previous episodes talking about how you know, we don't have to go to neuroscience. The social psychology does quite well. If the if social psychology studies on priming effects and self-deception and confabulation and all these other phenomena, if they are consistently showing that we are not even consciously aware of many of the things that go into our cognitions and our decisions, how can we say that we make rational decisions right. then yeah. that we are fully responsible yeah. for? If we don't even know eighty yeah. percent of what's been yeah, going on even, underneath, I don't think we need to even have modern science to know that there was something terribly wrong with the dualist story. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, yeah. that's 
It yeah. helps. I mean, I, I mean, it yeah, bolsters it the case, definitely but it's bolsters not the case. Yeah. Well, the other thing that irritated me specifically about some of Melee's arguments were that one of his arguments is not based upon the science of whether determinism or free will exists, but the consequences of having free will or not. Or yeah, I noticed that right away. I find this with creationism too. You always know you're sort of like the argument's going to take a turn for the better for you when somebody starts arguing of, well, if it was true that we evolved, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have moral responsibility. <laughs> yeah. and, yep. this is, yep. Yep. and this is what we're shocking about his stuff because he's a, sophist- a sophisticated guy, but he's, he likes to talk about the public is being misinformed about determinism, neural determinism, and therefore it's going to make them more immoral because there are some studies out there showing that when you cause people to believe in determinism or challenge their free will beliefs, there's some studies out that show that people like steal things or they become more willing to cheat. The rationale being that it erodes their sense of moral responsibility. If just about, don't let them know about it and everyone will behave. Yeah, okay. so, so that's kind of an odd argument against determinism in favor of free will is to say, well, if it is true that we're determined, don't tell people because they're going to be immoral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We also have information from some of these same research groups that, that it makes you more immoral to be an determinist showing that there is another side of it. So there's been recently some studies that have come out about free will beliefs and the tendency to uh, be retributive or vindictive in your – essentially in your punishment. Uh, when you cause people to believe more in free will, those people become more punitive. Essentially, they become hard-ass on what they perceive as moral transgression. Right, right. But the fascinating studies are that this is manipulatable too. In other words, when you do these interventions where let's say that you read about free will or a famous passage from Francis Crick's book, uh, The Astonishing Hypothesis, he was a hardcore determinist, is one manipulation where you have people read that your brain is just meat, mm-hmm. your, your thoughts and your concerns are all just electric activity, is supposed to increase your deterministic beliefs. Well, when they use manipulations like that, what they find is that people get more punitive the more free will is primed. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's a clever way to study this. They survey students before and after they take a cognitive neuroscience course. Over the course of the semester, you're learning all about the brain and all the stuff mm-hmm. that we talk about, whatever. They did a, one of the studies that was um, done by this research group is by uh, Sharif is the lead author, Free Will and Punishment. He don't like it. Yeah. When you have people <laughs> – Sharif don't like it. <laughs> when, you have, when you survey people before and after their neuroscience class – and then you give them a chance to do a mock prison trial thing. That is, you're, you read about a trial of a, a moral offender like a, a murderer and you ask, what should the sentence be? What they found was is that the people who took the uh, neuroscience course relative to those who took a geography course became more punitive towards the offender. In other words, they, they recommended a harsher sentence. Hmm. So there's, there's a trend there that your belief about free will – even though, like I said, these other studies might show that uh, you, you know, deterministic things might provo- provoke shady behavior, it also makes you more vindictive for the reason that is obvious is that you yeah. hold people more responsible for mm-hmm. what they do. Yeah. So you might think, well, what's wrong with that? It, le- it correlates with things like anti-distribution uh, policies or yep. common good type support, yeah. uh, you know, cutting welfare t- uh, payments <clears throat> and things right. like that is when you, when you prime people with the notion that you could have done otherwise. It makes them more, well, that person shouldn't have done that then. It's their own right. fault. So we need to not yeah. support those they people. They should not have been born black. Almost all of the arguments I hear on that side are ultimately come down yep. to responsibility, to this notion of responsibility. And, and responsibility is important. But it is something that is trained just like anything else and the 
notion seems to be that if we were to create programs to help people, we would somehow be reducing people's responsibility. Well, think about the implications of Millie's argument if the scientists shouldn't go around talking about determinism because it makes people more moral. So should we prevent people from taking – Cognitive neuroscience classes because they'll find they'll actually yes. be exposed to the yeah. fact that yes. the brain is Absolutely. a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. You know, the impl- it's absurd that you should argue that you should restrict because of the implications of something. You should stri- restrict their knowledge about when that people thing. know more issues get more complicated. There's more gray area. And that's not hard. just black and white. <laughs> and that makes life that more is a neuroscience difficult. course doesn't involve researchers playing up, ginning up the deterministic impl- implications. Right. Yeah. It just has them learning about the brain's activity. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of his arguments suppose, presuppose that there's the d- direction goes from learning about free will to then making up your mind about the moral responsibility question. That is, mm. oh, people are have choices, therefore they're responsible, or people don't have choice, they're determined, so therefore they're not responsible. But there's a study that came out, a series of studies. The lead author's name is Clark, that shows that the directionality also can, goes the other way as well, and that is that the, the first. You have the desire to hold people morally responsible and that influences your views of free will. Mm-hmm. In other words, part of the effect is first you say, oh, that was a crime or that was a, a transgressor. That person needs to pay for it. That formulates your view about whether how much choice somebody has in the behavior after the effect. Yeah. That yeah. is when you're exposed to immoral behavior as opposed to something that doesn't have any moral relevance, it increases your – sense that people freely chose that behavior. So mm-hmm. in other words, if it's a moral act like so-and-so is on the way home and he gets into a car accident, um, if the person had preceded that story with and he cheated on his wife and went home and got into the car accident, people are more likely to be punitive and saying, well, he deserved that. What, we, we saw this because even true of inanimate objects. You can perceive a robot as having free will if it did something to piss you off. The series of studies by Clark showed that uh, one of the manipulations was students in the course received an email informing them that there was an ostensible cheating classroom incident where somebody had cheated on the test. And then they measured these people's free will beliefs. And compared to the, the condition where the, they didn't weren't informed of cheating, those who heard that other people had cheated in class became more free willy afterwards. In other words, they became mm-hmm. more that hearing about an act of immorality made them shift in a free will direction. Again, the rationale being that people ought to be held responsible if I've just heard about this immoral action occurring. We often hear a lot of this crap about well, um, atheists and determinist and materialist want to believe that their behavior is caused so they can run wild and be immoral and do all kinds of things to justify their lack of control. Well, that that cuts both ways. People want to believe in free will if they have a sense of punitiveness about them. The mm-hmm. other people ought to be if punished. If they're very vindictive and harsh and individuals. Hold on one second though. I, I have a problem with the very basis of this study because what you're doing is you are priming people with something and seeing how their responses change as a result. Yes. Is that not determinism? I mean that is exactly – that's exactly it. It's saying that these are not uncaused choices. I always say – I think I like, mentioned this before. If, I always say to my psych class, if you have a problem with determinism, why are you in this classroom studying psychology? Right. It's a lot exactly. of yeah. Yeah. If you believe that, that yeah. your choice can opt you out of the causal chain, that yes, OK, influences can occur. But the person can then choose to decide independent of that and opt out of that. Why study that, science of psychology? Even, even is, William yeah. James way back in the 1800s who hated determinism was like psychology is going to have to accept some of this as its, as its assumptions because otherwise what would we make of our results? 
I mean, I think the response is sometimes, well, it's not like a hundred percent of people yeah. do the same thing under manipulation. Yeah, but if if we're going to make anything out of the numbers, if we're going to make any kind of generalizations about what just happened after experimental manipulation, it's either going to be, well, people just happened to do this. Sixty yeah. percent of people <laughs> just happened to do this. Or it's going to be there's some underlying phenomena that's behind it. Well, I had a classroom argument one time where where a a person was objecting to the term determinism and I said, what would you like to call this? And he said, how about influence? Um, I acknowledge that people are influenced by their genes, by their – Context the, uh, or the you know brain activity, yeah. but I don't like the term determinism because again it sounds determined as in they had no other choice to do as it. In, yeah. But that's it's not that what it means. It's that predetermined thing yeah. once again that people get stuck on. Uh, yeah. From atheists, we li- we get a lot of pushback. They don't like determinism because physics is no longer deterministic. But again, mm. that's kind of a, an irrelevant argument. I it, I think that's semantics. That gets you random. If you want to call me, a, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that there, if indeterminism is really true, even at the psychological level, then yes, it's randomness. It doesn't give you choice. And that's it gives not you randomness. Yes. But otherwise, I mean, the one way to look at it is those quantum effects that are indeterminate on a very small level, they do not typically boil up to the point where they're going to affect our cognition. Our decision making. Right. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, right. I mean, that would be equally an argument against saying, I can't raise my arm right now. Quantum effects might might screw up my nervous system yeah. and, and make it so that my or arm doesn't move. Jeremy well, is waving his or arm. Or I no right longer play billiards or something. Yeah. Well, another another area of the objections that people have often to the determinism thing is the subjective sense that they are making a choice. There's another study that I want to talk about that's interesting because uh, it's in the area of what's called in psychology of embodied cognition. It's sort of all the rage now. What it what that simply means is that your physical state, being a physical being, affects your perception of the world. So for some of these studies are sort of pop psych famous, like if you hold a warm cup of coffee, you make oh, more yeah. positive judgments than if you hold an mm-hmm. ice cold drink. Yeah. Or that when you have people hold a pencil in their teeth to make themselves smile, they report their mood is better than if they hold it with their lips and they're, they're not smiling, thereby showing that your physical state, posing in other words, mm-hmm. or, or, or warm or temperature, affects your psychological condition unbeknownst to you. In other words, you yeah. don't know that you're being manipulated. But it also affects your opinion of determinism free will, your bodily state. So this is a series of studies. The lead author's name was Ent, E-N-T, called Embodied Free Will Beliefs, Your Effects of Physical States on Metaphysical Opinions, where just like I was saying, if uh, they go through a list of physical conditions and then ask people about their opinion on free will and determinism, so things like epileptic people, if you've had a seizure or not, or a panic disorder, which uh, is a psychological condition that comes on out of the blue where you suddenly become fearful that you're going to die or you have to escape. Those people that have had those conditions have more deterministic views and again, probably for obvious reasons that they're exposed to their body being essentially a product of neural activity. Right. Uh, your se- when you have a seizure, you you know have symptoms coming on that are electrical storms in your brain. Or in another series of studies, they had people who just simply felt physical drive states. So they had to urinate or they had to – they were physically tired or they felt mm-hmm. horny or things like that, that when people were in certain physical states that they felt a motivation to do those things, you know, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm tired – their, again, their free will beliefs were diminished as a result of those physical states because, again, if you're exposed to the fact that you know I'm not 
operating 100% today because I worked a third shift right. or things like that, that you're less likely to say, oh, I have a choice about my behavior. No, you don't. Go to the grocery <laughs> store hungry sometime and tell yeah. me you or have a choice over. about Or hungover, that too. Oh, a greasy cheeseburger. Yeah, right. Or even dieters, people that are uh, – and here's an interesting twist is that people who had been successfully dieting were more likely to believe, believe in free will because they've been exposed to – they've successfully resisted their temptation. Mm. Right, but right. other people uh, who unsuccessfully dieted, it's less – of a belief in free will because, they, again, they view themselves as correctly, I would argue, as being a product of their physical state. Mm-hmm. So this is these series of studies of embodied cognition would show that free will determinism is, is, a, is uh, affected by your own – in the moment of your own perception of being sort of in your body, in the – being driven by your brain. That's why I find one of Mele's – another one of his objections so – meaningless. Uh, he he seems very triumphant about the fact that if you survey people and you ask them, well, let's just pretend the mind is just the brain and there's no such thing as a soul. Uh, and then he gives them a scenario. He says, if you give people a scenario, a man sees a $20 bill fall from a stranger's pocket and considers returning it and decides to keep it. If I ask whether he had free will when he made that decision, 73 percent answer yes. In a related condition involving a compliance drug, only 21 percent of participants Hmm. say the person has free will at the time. Now, if these participants are playing along, we have evidence that a majority of English speakers do not see having a non-physical mind or soul as a requirement for free will. He knows, in other words, he can't – no matter how much money Templeton gives him, (laughs) he's not going to be able to prove dualism correct. He wants compatibilism, what we would call some some ability for freedom even in a deterministic universe. But he wants to call it free will and he's using kind of public opinion to justify that. But at the same time, why do you bury that – Related condition where 21 percent say the person doesn't have free will if they've been given a drug. Mm-hmm. When you consider you know, your biochemistry, it's, it's essentially the same thing. To me, I don't get what victory he gets out of a public that's generally uninformed about this issue yeah. saying, yeah. well, they are of, course I could, of course I could still have free will and yeah. uh, if, even if I didn't have a soul or an immaterial mind. I mean that maybe helps him a little bit against – People who would say, "Well, we're all we're all dualists in this culture." Okay, a lot of people who embrace free will don't don't base it on dualism explicitly in their minds. A lot of right. people just never even question the concept. But I don't see how this is somehow evidence for the free will proposition. Why are they dualists? Or, so because they were raised that way. If anything, oh. it's ammunition for him to be allowed to redefine views that are essentially deterministic or compatibilistic right, under right. that label free will. He's engaged in a bait and switch really. He's accurate in that there are some studies that, I, uh, that, that show that the folk conception of free will is more linked yes. to the perception of choice than dualism. There's a study that came out this year by an uh, author's name is Feldman called – the title is uh, Free Will is About Choosing, which tells you everything you need to know about what the study found is that people's free will beliefs are linked to their notion of cognitively associating choice with freedom. That is you're free to choose. You don't have a gun to your head in other words. Yeah. They would say – um, you could have done otherwise. Therefore, that's free will. You weren't forced to do that action. But as we've – again, as we've talked about, the, no, the subjective notion of choosing or not is itself determined and sometimes an illusion. Yeah, and, and also if we're going to claim negative effects from like lack of choice because you believe in determinism instead of free will, we've also seen other studies that suggest that's mostly a cultural phenomenon. 
yeah, so here the in the West, yeah. in the where West and, free will is so heavily emphasized, you are going to get those kind of things. But that could be nothing more than tracking a major cultural stereotype. The study by Savani is what you're referring to, was they compared U.S. students with Indian students, students in India. Oh, okay. and, and what they found was is that sure enough that the that exposing people to determinism made them less moral. If they were in the United States, it didn't have the same effect on the students in India. Hmm. Uh, students in a collectivist culture like India, so this is things like, you know, a history of arranged also, marriages or – Hinduism also or suggests villages. a lot of determinism as well, does it not? They're mm -hmm. used to the notion that their choices are, are constrained and they don't see anything. It doesn't freak them and out. And that to, earlier decisions have an effect on your later decisions. Yeah, or, or their right. sense of options are not, you know, this is my caste or this is what my family wants right. me to do and that's perfectly natural. We, but the right. point is that of course these manipulations affect – in the United States, affect our – offend our notion that is, oh, I'm just a piece of electric meat. I might as well go pillage and rape and you know. Whereas in the, in a collectivist culture, they would say, "Well, duh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, of course, my choices are constrained, and I'm not a fully autonomous agent. Yeah. So of what? Of course, you're one other thread in the fabric. <laughs> so what? If if psychology researchers are out there, I'd be really interested in having studies look at the effect of you know just free will and the, the type of manipulations yeah. that we're talking about. But then also subdividing people who are were already in, in, in essence materialist determinists. Yeah. Right, seeing if right, those right. manipulations make them immoral, and I'm banking that they don't. And it, also yeah. and and also I think which would be much more valuable than just saying, well, if you didn't have a mind, uh, immaterial mind, are, would you still be free? I think is to maybe just ask specific questions about when they hold somebody morally responsible in a free will sense or not. I go over these as thought experiments with my class uh, every semester. I, you know, Grandma can't remember your name. She has Alzheimer's disease. Do we hold her morally responsible? No one says yes. Not a single person. Yeah, see, the, the dualist interactionists would picture grandma inside of a little like pod inside of her brain. <laughs> little homunculus like, grandma. Completely aware of what your name is but unable to have click on the interface. Out, which yeah. is absurd. Or Johnny's insensitive to your feelings because he struggles with autism. Mm. Then what I get is a sudden incremental holding of responsibility. The students, well, we don't want to be mean to Johnny. Yes. But we do want to at least inform Johnny, all right, here's what you did in this situation and, and that makes people upset. Mm -hmm. And as I go up the list, it's on the list, each incremental step up, the way you react to somebody has more of a causal effect on their future behavior. Mm -hmm. And the more your behavior could adjust them, the more – just instinctively people choose to hold the person responsible and the converse. The less your reactions to them will have an effect, the more we're just willing to say, look, this is biology. It's out of my hands. So honestly, I think if Melee reproduced his studies and started asking the right kind of questions, I think we would find that even Americans are much more deterministic or compatibilist in their thinking yeah. than uh, even – than what they realize. Than even what we really suppose. Yeah. Well, I would even suggest that there are some manipulations that you can do involve things that, you, Jeremy, you've talked about before and that is like mindfulness meditation. Essentially, one of the effects of mindfulness is that it teaches that there's a – that your uh, emotions are not reality or they're, they're at least that they're the you that's you, your yeah. ego is different from that. And so you notice, OK, I'm feeling this way. That's interesting or my my thoughts are like monkey, angry monkeys, you know, and you're yeah. – and you, that, that it teaches that you're – that your ego is separate from 
all the storm of thoughts and emotions that you're feeling. You start to see your thoughts as reactions. It's not like, oh, I'm so pissed at her. It's it's like, whoa, that's weird. I just got really mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or in the sense of evaluating someone else's behavior, it's the difference between that. It's unfortunate that that person's unenlightened, or you know, <laughs> as opposed to I bad, say that bad, to bad. myself all the time. Let's go just punish so, that person. So sad that they are not as enlightened as me. And same for melee. Maybe we can give that to him. I mean, he's just he's just not. No, actually, to be honest, I haven't read his full book and I do want to say I, I want to give this guy's argument a chance and look at it in more depth. It's just what I'm seeing so far from him seems to be motivated and playing fast and loose. So uh, I, I'm a little bit skeptical. Not worth $4 million. Another related notion to the notion of responsibility is this notion that when somebody is immoral – that rather than a behavior, it reflects some sort of inherent dispositional quality of evil. Yeah. Right. Right. And so that some of the same researches that we've talked about here, like Roy Bymester from Florida, he had a book out a few years ago called Evil, uh, where how do we – what does it mean when we categorize somebody's behavior as being a constitutional dispositional evil? And religion, I think one of the negative effects of – Certain strains of religion, particularly fundamentalist ones, but yeah, is that it promotes that notion of people's behavior as being at some extremes demonic or satanic. Mm-hmm. But even right. just simply that person's evil, there ha- that has damaging effects. There was a study that came out this year. Uh, the author's name was Davis, called uh, "Relational Spirituality and Forgiveness: How Your Appraisals May Hinder Forgiveness." Some of the research on forgiveness, I think I've talked about this on the show before, shows a really tenuous or not as strong relationship with being religious. That is, religious and spiritual people as a trait don't necessarily – they're not more forgiving than others despite the doctrines. Why is that the case? One of the findings is that um, that religion might promote some of these things like you know turn the other cheek and it has doctrines like that. But it coexists with another strain of religion of an evil attribution. That is mm. when somebody's like that, they are – it's about them as a person. They're, be, they're an evil person. First, they had a scale sort of developed as to what, what does that mean when the offender is evil tended to dehumanize that person, so like a demonic thing or that they're not you know, as human as me, but also a dissimilarity attribution. That is, this person and I are not alike <laughs> or those people, that group of people are evil because they're not – they're subhuman. That's what they mean by evil. And it showed that, you know, like, like I was saying, that religious and spirituality contains a strain that if to the extent that the person views the other offender not as simply, you know, unfortunate behavior or that they're acting like that way, but they're evil. Or a conditioned le- thing that we might be able to change. Yeah. Right. If they viewed them as evil, they were less forgiving of that person. So yeah, one of the answers of to this, one of the, I think, negative strains of religion that's damaging is this notion that somebody is sinful because of a quality of themselves or even, like I said, like, you know, a lot of Pentecostal view possession as being very real, that you haven't right. – you're not just an mm-hmm. alcoholic behavior or that you're drinking too much. It's you're dealing with alcohol spirits or demons or the, mm-hmm. not just the spirits but <laughs> – uh, or like your depression demon. They personify it yep. as, as an actual f- uh, entity which – you know. The problem with that though is, is that you – again, you view that as a quality that's not just a behavior but an aspect that's a disposition and it leads you to view the person as less human. In a w- strange way, they tend to be more fatalist than the determinists yeah, in this yeah, room so. <laughs> because determinism implies that at least for some things, we can condition in the other direction. And, and this is more like, well, if they're if they're demon-filled, what do you do about well, that other than cast out the demon, We've talked in the show evil. before about the problems between – like with let's say CRC uh, mm-hmm. doctrine and that, that some of the contradictions between this strong emphasis on free will, responsibility for punishment with 
predestination right. or, or yeah, that yeah. things are – but what does it mean to say oh, fight for free will? You have choice so I can hold you accountable but then say God willed it or God wills events to happen. So does yeah. God – does the determinism get pushed from well, you to God? So, so he's people tempting re- you. He's, religious he's, people, I mean they're going to they're have different views on this. You, you have uh, religious determinists or theological determinists is what, they, what, what they'd say. You know, the Calvinist, you know, the Reformed tradition. Some view the sovereignty of God actually depends on determinism. Yeah, hmm. yeah. It's, an ex- it's a form of external determinism. Yeah. So I'm living in a world where God tempts me or tries me or does things right, to yeah, me it's not, it's not that I can't control. Yeah. The reason I've always heard – Justin probably could answer this better but is just kind of the answer is it's both. It's right. just, it's one of those mysteries. Yeah, you have a responsibility and you couldn't have done otherwise. But like the, the simplistic – That's gonna, essentially what I was taught. I don't mean this to sound glib but like when Pharaoh's heart was hardened, yes. did yes. God yeah. harden his heart? Yeah. When Judas had a spirit enter him that made him betray, betray Christ, was that his choice? Both. That's yep. what they – that's what I've heard. Yeah. It's both. He Pharaoh allowed, hardened he his heart to happen and God – When, when Saul's yep. depressed and throws his harp at David or whatever, what tries to mess with David, did, did, it has some textual things in there that God made Saul that mm-hmm. way, right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So he didn't have free it's will. It's almost like there's yeah. intellectual inconsistencies with people who believe the Bible. <laughs> well, so, I, uh, <laughs> uh, Paul addresses this very briefly. His response is essentially, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that God's response to yeah. Job? Yeah. 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 That was what – that was the answer it's, Job It's got pretty much really too. cruel skeptical theism is what that boils uh, down to. What if, what if God decided to raise Pharaoh up just to be a vessel for destruction and well, his and answer is, reason, no, who are you to ask what God – purpose God has? Of course, the true reason he caused Pharaoh's heart to harden was that so we could get the Exodus movie. Um, what is it? Woo-hoo. Exodus, Gods and Kings? Yeah. Is that, maybe we'll talk about the Exodus movie on a. I'm definitely going to go see it. Oh, yeah. I'm excited I'm, to see I'm it. I'm so on board. White people playing Egyptians? Come on. <laughs> Doesn't Moses sound a lot like Batman? He, yes, weirdly. Here are strange accents. Here come the frogs. <laughs> you see my staff? It's a snake now. <laughs> and Pharaoh's all like. Take control of your people, (laughs) Moses. Today in polyatheism, we're going to take a look at one of the reasons for the season. A God who sacrificed himself to help humanity by being hung from a tree. Or... Instead, we could talk about a big man with a great white beard who brought joy and frivolity to folks in December. You know what? Let's do both. Yes. In this polyatheism, we're going to take a look at someone way cooler than those panty-waist, lamos, <laughs> Jesus, and Santa, and instead celebrate the God who carry us, carries us not along some stupid metaphoric beach, but through the middle of each and every week. The one-eyed ass-kicker-in-chief, Odin. Yes. Okay, you say, I mean, any time is a good time to talk about Odin, but why now? Why here at the dawn of the winter solstice season should we talk about the king of the Norse pantheon? Well, I retort, you've heard of Yule Tide, Yule Logs, Yule Brenner, etc., 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 but... Have you heard of Yulnir? Yulnir, or Yulnir, spelled with a J, is just one of the many names used for the god we most commonly refer to as Odin. 
Amongst his other names are, of course, Wotan, which gives us Wotan's Day. Unlike Yuletide, Wotan's Day is not celebrated annually, but is a weekly event sandwiched in between Tears Day and Thor's Day. Yeah, ladies and gents, take a look at your calendar and you'll find that four of the seven days of the week are named after Norse gods, with Odin right smack in the center of it all. They got more holidays than Jewish people. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and when you consider the sun and the moon, get two of the other days, Saturn is this weird standout out there. Oh, I could have a one-day work week. So that would be yeah, fine. fine by me. Odin, Wotan, and Yulnir are far from the only names for Odin. Uh, the Poetic Edda, which lays the groundwork for much of what we know of Norse myth, tells us that Odin has 12 names. And then goes on to actually give us way more than that. <laughs> he has 12, and now here's several dozen. Um, one of these is Ig, meaning terrible one, in the more traditional fear and awe-inspiring sense of terrible. And while that name isn't used a whole lot, its significance is huge. You see Odin, or Ig, in order to gain even greater power and knowledge than he already possessed – was hanged from the world tree. Sidebar. Relatively speaking, the crucifixion that Jesus is said to have endured was actually very quick for a crucifixion, right? These things easy. often take days and days of suffering. He had a few hours, right? Like in Conan the Barbarian. Exactly, or Spartacus. Uh, Odin hung on his tree for nine days. Take that, Jesus. And because of this tale of his sacrifice, the world tree becomes known as Yggdrasil, meaning the mount or steed of Ig. The whole universe held up by the tree and all nine-ish realms of Norse myth is literally named after our man Odin. So by extrapolation, if Odin hung... From the world tree, which was in turn named after him, and one of the other names connected to the Yule, then isn't Yggdrasil really kind of the first Yule tree? And doesn't that make Odin hanging from said tree into the first Christmas tree ornament? Um, sketchy linguistics and the fact that Yggdrasil is clearly an ash tree and not the traditional pine tree of Christmas aside, I think I've made a real strong case for the manufacturing and sale of hanged Odin Christmas tree ornaments. <laughs> Make me one. I will buy it. I will buy them all. I swear to you. Veritir, or God of Men, is another name for Odin, this one speaking to the fact that along with his two brothers, Odin is said to have created the first humans. His major contribution to the process being that he imbued humans with their soul, which, as the Velfather, or father of the slain, he remained in possession of until the Battle of Ragnarok. Now, not all souls, of course, just the worthy slain. He doesn't want people to die of syphilis or just the uh, elect ebola just the cool <laughs> ones now uh other names uh of his attest to odin being the all father uh the ruler of the gallows a wanderer friend of the goths swinger of gungnir friend, friend of the goths and swingers yes uh gungnir being his trusty spear of course long beard red mustache High One, the last three of which are titles I aspire to myself, and so on and so forth. Many of his names refer to the loss of one of his eyes, such as Hor, 
one eye, which did not happen in one of his frequent battles, but in fact was the cost of one of his even more frequent quests for knowledge. In exchange for a drink from the Well of Mimir, or the Well of Knowledge, Odin gave up an eye, which is no small price to pay for a warrior, depth perception being pretty important when you're hurling spears around. Throughout the poetic and prose Eddas, we are treated to stories of Odin, often in disguise, setting out into the world to gain or prove his knowledge. He resurrects a dead, wise Jotun woman, Volva, she's called. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and has trivia matches against any smarty pants types he can find. In the end, Odin always wins out, revealing his true self at the last moment and turning the tables on whomever he's up against. Even when he's chilling out on his throne in Higdjuskalfi, I have no idea, it's just a lot of consonants, uh, in the hall of Valaskjalf, or presiding over the Einherjar in Valhalla, he has his two ravens, named Hugin and Munin, meaning thought and memory, flitting about in the world gathering intel for him. He's not an all-seeing, all-knowing god in the you know Judeo-Christian kind of way, but he has spies that go out into the world and then report back to him so he knows everything that's going on. Now, Odin is pretty fantastic, but if you're thinking of taking up Odin worship, just a word of warning, there's a lot of blood involved. <laughs> Animal sacrifice bloodletting, and even, yes, the occasional full-on human sacrifice. Uh, the old Germanic Yule celebration was a veritable orgy of blood, where not only were cattle and horses slain, but their blood would then be smeared on visages of Odin himself. Uh, if you watch the show Vikings, any of you guys seen Vikings? Mm -mm. It's real good. On the History Channel. I think you can watch it on... Uh, Netflix or I, something now. I'm blown away. Good show on the history it, channel? It's a drama. Huh. It's it's huh. their first drama. And oh, yeah. I thought it was a history. That's right because I thought yes. it was just a talking head thing. No. But it was like characters. It is a, it's a straight-up drama and it's great. And in I think it's in season two. They show one of the human sacrifice rituals that are done Woo. to Odin in mm. a in a fairly accurate representation of the, the temple. And it's – you know, it's it's way more dramatic than yeah. eating a wafer and taking a sip of wine or, if you grew up CRC like me, a cube of bread and grape juice. Do they show vulva? They reference vulva. <laughs> they do. And actually, I believe it, there are European edits of the show. Oh, they do have that where she shows they up. They do okay. show um, – <laughs> So uh, it's, in fact, the bloody nature of Odin rituals that led to a decline in his worship and a shift over to figures like his son, Thor, who did not require anything quite so messy. It's in large part thanks to Snorri Sturluson, the author or editor or whatever you want to call him, of the Prose Edda. That's uh, the coolest name ever. Snorri Sturluson <laughs> is not, not great. <laughs> Well, he was the son of Sturlo. Sounds almost like a Dickensian name. <laughs> oh, so great. Snorri's going to tell us another uh, tale. <laughs> uh, I'm reading a whole book about Snorri Sturluson. He was this great big fat guy who hung out in his Icelandic hot tub all the time and <laughs> wrote awesome. uh, uh, Norse uh, adventures. Very much so. He's a, a Falstaffian character. Um, but it's thanks to Snorri that um, the then Christianized Norse had a renewed interest in Odin. 
he, as a lover of knowledge himself, focuses much more of his attention on the chief of the gods and portrays the much more popular at the time Thor as kind of an oaf. Thor is used largely in comedic scenes um, and so on. Not that he's not powerful, but Snorri was was the big Odin guy. Uh, that being said, one of the greatest interactions between Odin and Thor shows up in the older Edda or the poetic Edda in a poem uh, called The Poem of Harbarth, where Odin, who's in disguise as a ferryman, taunts his own son in an epic and unbalanced trash-talking battle of wits. <laughs> it's hilarious if you're into that sort of thing. Now, also really good is uh, Dirk Gently's uh, – <laughs> well, which one was that with Thor? It was the second one in the series? Yeah, I can't remember. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, Douglas Adams, yeah. his, his other great series. His scene where Thor's eagle is going after Dirk is like physical comedy in written form that is – Only the Brits like, can do that. Yeah. They're so good. I it. have never laughed so hard at reading something that I actually lost my breath <laughs> until I read that. Now, of course, we can't talk about Odin without at least mentioning his final moment, which will come, as many will, in the Battle of Ragnarok. Odin, we're told, will be eaten by the wolf Fenrir, whose mouth is so big that his top jaw scrapes the sky while his bottom scrapes the earth. Um, and he's one of the monstrous offspring of good old trickster god Loki. Though he is the first of the gods, Odin's death will be final, and the new, peaceful, idyllic world that will rise from the ashes of Ragnarok will have no room for the War Merry One. So there you have it. Odin, the shifty-eyed, spear-shaker, host-blinder, engager of battle, screamer, yeller, nourisher, mover of constellations, victory author, sleep-bringer, ruler of treachery, burgeoning, Lord of the Aesir, sole creator of magical songs, <laughs> ancient one, Riddler, Fetter Loosener, and that's that's less than half of the names <laughs> given to him, by the way. Oh, read them all and I'll speed it up. Oh, okay. All I want to know is who plays him in the movie? Is it Anthony Hopkins? It's Anthony Hopkins. Okay, that's all yeah. I want to know. I'll just get my information from there. And of course, he is just one more god worth not worshipping this Yuletide. And that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Um, we will probably not have another regular episode until the first of the year because other people travel uh, over the holiday season. It's Jeremy's tropical um, adventure, yeah, his I annual adventure. guess it is since we were going to use this week to record that first of the year show. Actually, I'm thinking it might be more like the 5th or the 10th. Or the fifteenth yeah, of the new year, but it'll be. We'll got, we have one coming in a month, no longer than that. Yes. Um, in the meantime, of course, you can go to our website, doubtcast.org, or freethoughtblogs.com/slash/reasonable-doubts. You can comment on this and past episodes. You can email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, ideas, uh, topics. We've gotten uh, some really good ones recently so do that you can also make a donation to the show of which a lot of people have been doing thanks very much for that or in the spirit of the season make a donation to foundation beyond belief by the way if any of our listeners out there would like to hire me to do virtually anything 
I will take it. I currently have four jobs and would love to reduce that number and get one that pays fairly well. So, you know, just put that out there. Um, yeah, and we never did get any emails from millionaires. And no, we I'm didn't. I'm really yeah. disappointed and, in our uh, millionaire listeners. Step up, guys. How much do you know about stripping paint? <laughs> and, of course, the that. reason that I don't have enough money is because of free will. Where's your bootstraps? Yeah, exactly. My my straps fell off my boots, Horatio Alger. What am I supposed to do now? I don't have no Ragged boots. dick. That's a deep cut for the literary folks out there. Anyway, so uh, in the meantime, uh, folks, have a Merry Christmas, uh, joyous Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, delightful solstice. And great Festus. A great Festivus. 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 Uh, a Festivus for the rest of us. There you go. What's that Zappa holiday? There's a Zappa holiday around here. And, of course, a Happy New Year. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.